Good morning. My name is Chet. I'm one of the pastors here. We are working our way through the book of Exodus. If you will, turn to Exodus chapter 31. We looked at Exodus chapter 28 and 29 last week. Uh, the week prior, we looked at 26 and on up, and we looked at some of the sections in chapter 31. In chapter 31, there is um, a section on a census that is to be taken, and we won't spend time studying that together, but we are moving to chapter 31 today, and we're going to study through this entire chapter uh, together. I, um, a couple years ago, was on vacation, and I ran into a store to buy some milk. I think that was pretty much all I needed. Uh, I might have needed one other thing, but mostly milk. And if you had stopped me on my way into the store and said, hey, how much should milk cost? I would have said, I don't know, and I don't have any opinions about milk. I just need some. And I would have been thinking I told you the truth. I walk to the back of the store, and I get to the gallons of milk, and milk was $6 and something. And I said to myself, $6? What on earth? Like, I'm just standing there staring at this, like, has milk lost its mind? Did this come from a magical cow? What, what on? And apparently, I had a lot of opinions about milk that were very deep inside of me that I cared deeply about because I was enraged in this grocery store. And I wouldn't have been able to tell you that um, two minutes ago. And the reason I tell you that story is that this morning we are going to look at a passage that is going to, I think, shine some light on how we view work, how we view work and how we view rest and how we view our labor. And I think it's possible that you might think, I don't really have like a philosophy of work. I don't have a theology of work. I don't have something that I've, I haven't given this much thought. I don't really have opinions on it. And what I'd like to say is you do actually have some opinions on work. Maybe you have thought it through, but if you haven't, I'd like to offer that you actually do have some sort of a viewpoint on work. You're like me with milk. You might not realize it, but you have some thought process. And I want to tell you the two primary ones that our culture gives us. These are the ones that you're handed as like, hey, pick an option. These are the two ways to think about work. And I would argue that you probably have, you lean in one of these directions. Option number one, work gives you your identity. It helps you know who you are, and it helps everybody else know who you are. And by having good work, you are better, and by having worse work, you are worse. This is identity. This is one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why we ask people pretty quickly, what do you do? What kind of work do you do? It's not just a good topic of conversation when you first meet somebody. It also helps you know, what kind of person are you? Who are you? But people don't know how to answer that question. So you say, what kind of work do you do? And it helps us define that. So work as identity is one of the cultural options we're given. The other one is that work is a necessary evil that is useful for providing the type of life that you want. Work is a necessary evil that is useful for providing the type of life that you want. So if you want a lavish life, you need work that will provide that. If you want to live in the woods and eat roots, you don't have to work at all. You did it. But whatever lifestyle you want, the amount of rest that you want, the amount of pleasantness that you want, the amount of stability that you want, work is there to provide that. And you need to work the exact amount that gives that to you. And one of the reasons I think I can help you see that this is how we think about this is we ask little kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? 
And B is, a, is an identity word. What do you want to be when you grow up? And we're interested in this answer. And I, my wife showed me one where this little kid was like going first day of kindergarten. It said how old they were. And it said what class they were going into. And then it said, I want to be when I grow up. And they put chicken nugget. <laughs> and I guess they thought, what's the most amazing thing ever? I want to set my sights high. I want to be a chicken nugget. But we don't want chicken nugget as an answer. You want to hear doctor, lawyer, scientist, astronaut, Batman. Like we want something good to pour yourself into. And usually if you're talking to a kid and you say, they say they want to be a doctor and you say, that's great. You are saying that's great either because what a good identity, what a good person to be, what a good honorable thing to make yourself into, or that's great doctors live at the lake. And if a kid says something and you say, you don't want to do that, usually it's because it won't provide the type of life I want for you, or it's not the type of person I want you to be, because those are our primary things that we're given culturally. Now, as a Christian, we add a third thing into this, because I talk to people, they'll say things like, I'm really trying to follow Jesus. I want my life to matter. Is it okay for me to just repair HVAC units my entire life. Is that okay? Is it okay if all I ever do is teach kindergarten? Is that okay? Like, am, am I okay to do that? Or have I missed something? Have I rejected the mission of God somehow? And so this passage, I think, shines some light and gives us some clarity on all of that and will help us have a better approach to how we ought to view work and how we ought to view living lives of a lot of normal work under the leadership of God and in worship and glory to him. So let's pray, and we're going to read Exodus chapter 31 together. God, we ask for your grace. We ask for your help. We pray that you would give us clarity as we study your word today, that we might be spirit-filled laborers, and that we might love you and love our neighbors well through that. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I do not think that this passage is primarily here to teach us the things that we're going to talk about this morning. So we're going to read through it, and I'm going to try to help you see it in context with Exodus before I'm, we're going to walk through and point out some of the things that help kind of say, hey, this, this gives us some handles here on how we ought to think about work. So... Exodus chapter 31, the Lord said to Moses, Moses up on the mountain, God's been telling him over and over again all the things he's going to have to do. The Lord said to Moses, see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. And this is a recap of what we've been studying the past few weeks, starting in verse 7. The tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offerings with all its utensils and the basin and its stand and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. 
and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. So God's been telling him, you're going to do this. You're going to build this. You're going to build this. This is how you're going to build it. This is how long it's going to be. This is how wide. This is what a span is. All those things. And then he says, and I've set aside specifically these men to help. They're going to build it. And then he says this in verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. The Sabbath is the day of rest. That one day in seven, they would work six days and then they would rest and worship in rest to the Lord and do no work. You shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. So he says the Sabbath stands here to show you that I'm the one who sets you apart, who makes you holy, who makes you good. I'm the one who rescues you. I'm the one who gives you your worth. That's what's built into that word sanctify. And it's important because of what he's about to say. Verse 14, you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Now, as we study the Ten Commandments, one of the things we talked about is that we don't have a good radar as Americans for uh, the sanctity of God, the holiness of God. And so when he says things like, you're going to keep the Sabbath, and if you don't, you're going to be put to death, we immediately think that's an overreaction. But it's because we have an underreaction to the holiness of God, to the weight of obedience, and do you see what a rejection of the Sabbath is? It's a rejection of knowing God is the one who sets them apart. God has invited them into this sanctifying relationship, and a rejection of the Sabbath is a rejection of God being the one who makes them holy, who does the work. And so they're in this, in some ways, a rejection of the Sabbath for them is like a rejection of salvation for us to say that we don't want Jesus. I'll be the one who makes myself good. I'll be the one who makes myself holy. And it does what to us what it does to them, which it cuts them off from the people. Because he said, they, if, if they're to remember consistently that he's the one who redeems and then to, to work on that day is to reject that, it's a problem. And he will not put up with that being rampant in, the, um, in among his people and you will be put to death. Verse 15, six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout all their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. If you have more questions about the Sabbath, we taught about it when we looked at the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments. We won't spend as much time on it today. Verse 18, and he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So he's handing off to him all that they've talked about. Moses is about to go down the mountain and get to work. All we've read so far is stuff that he's supposed to do. He's leaving with a to-do list in so many ways. He's got a bunch of things he's got to do. God's given it to him and sending him down the mountain. Okay. So, one of the first things, though, that I think is helpful for us as we try to understand how we ought to approach work 
Because what's happening in this moment is God is giving Moses all of these instructions and he's telling him who's going to accomplish it and he's reminding him of the Sabbath and sending him down. And that's kind of where this fits in the context of Exodus. But I think for us, it's helpful for us to notice a few things that clarify how we ought to view work. The first one is this. Look at verse 2. See, I have called by name Bezalel. And then in verse 3, it says, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. Now, Moses is hearing this. What for? He's calling this guy specifically, and he's filled him with the Spirit of God. What for? And when we think of being filled with the Spirit of God, we think prophecy. He's going he's to be like in the priestly service. There's something going to be something, something really mm, spiritual is going to happen. And then he says, filled him with the Spirit of God. He's filled him with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to make every craft. I filled him with my Spirit for work, for craftsmanship, for competency, that he's poured in him. Ability and intelligence, knowledge and all craftsmanship. That this is a gift from God. Now, this is really interesting to me. It's really encouraging. And I also think that if we're to consider Bezalel, I don't think that he was sitting in his tent and had spent his entire life being incompetent. And God zapped him. And suddenly he was like, I must make artistic designs. I don't think that's what happened. I think that what happened is what happens in all of life for us where God is at work in this man and he grows in competency. I don't think when he made artistic designs for the tabernacle, it was the first time he had ever done it. One of the things he had to do was filigree, that they were going to do this. I want to show you all filigree. This is filigree. He had to engrave precious stones, wrap them in that, and put them on the shoulders of the priestly garments. I don't think it was the first time he'd ever made filigree. I think this was something that he had been good at, been competent in, been growing in, that God had poured this ability in him, and then God says, I've specifically designed him for this purpose. So go back, look. What he gives him is ability and intelligence, So, and then knowledge and all craftsmanship. And these are gifts from God, which, if you think about this, if God's the one who gives these things, then it glorifies God for Bezalel to be good at them. That if Moses comes down and he says, I'm looking for Bezalel, uh, son of Uri, son of Hur, tribe of Judah, like he goes to the tribe of Judah. Y'all got a Bezalel? Yeah, we got seven. Okay. <laughs> son of Uri, son of Hur. Oh, okay. We got two that are under Hur, but only one under Uri. That's the one I'm looking for. And when he says, okay, show me what you can do. How does Bezalel glorify God? By being excellent. And Moses would be watching him and go, and then look at God like, wow, you poured intelligence and ability and knowledge and craftsmanship into him. This is amazing. So Bezalel would glorify God well by being good at this. And have y'all ever in life seen someone who had ability and it just, you kind of marveled at it? Physical ability, 
They could dance or play a sport. They, they could play an instrument. And for a moment, you're just kind of swept up in the actual beauty of it, the glory of it, because there's God-given ability that's in the world that points us to him. It doesn't terminate on itself, but it rolls us up. Y'all ever seen intelligence and just been blown away by it? Like someone who figured something out, came out with something new, fixed a problem, designed something. You ever just, your car's not working, so you pop the hood and you're sad but impressed because it's like, this thing is magical. I don't know how to work it, but somebody made up something really good here. There's intelligence that's done these things, but it also says intelligence and knowledge, and I love that that's separated because intelligence and knowledge are not exactly the same thing. We put them together a lot, but someone can have knowledge without being the most intelligent person. There have been times where you've interacted with somebody, and they just know. They know what they're doing. They know how to fix the problem. They know how to sort a thing out. There are people, have you ever watched anybody who works in food service or fast food that loves their job and does a good job and knows what they're doing? Have you ever seen, like, I'll, I'll get stuck watching videos sometimes of people who just know what they're doing in some kind of building a craft or working on a thing or who can just uh, flip burgers real quick or the people who do that little ice cream thing where they take the ice cream from you and they give it back to you or whatever. Have you ever seen this? Like, you can go to Marble Slab and be blessed by someone being really good at doing what they're doing and enjoying it. They have the knowledge, the competence to do this. And craftsmanship, he blesses them with these things. And he specifically calls him to these things. That it's a, a God-given ability and a God-given calling for this. But then he says this, verse 6, And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahissamech, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. I have given to all able men ability. I want you to look at that for a second. Ability is a blessing. Can you highlight that for us? That ability is a blessing. Y'all, work is not a curse. It's cursed by sin. So there's aspects of it that are more difficult. But work was in the garden. God designed us to be competent and to work. And that we bring him glory in good work. So if God's the one who gives ability, if God's the one who gives skill and craftsmanship and knowledge, then we can glorify God by doing that well. Therefore, all good work can be worship. If there's a way in work to glorify God through ability and skill and knowledge and craftsmanship, which I would argue that all jobs take something of one of those four. They take ability or they take intelligence or they take knowledge or they take some craftsmanship, that all work takes some sort of, then if that's a way to glorify God by doing it well, therefore work can be worshipful. Now, there are some occupations that you're not allowed to do. Like if you said... God's gifted me with the ability, and one of the things that I'm great at is hurting people who owe the mafia money. <laughs> we would just say, he's given you other abilities, find one of those. <laughs> you might excel at this, but this is not an okay thing for you to do. But most occupations, most work is going to be something that you get to do in a way that glorifies God, that's worshipful. So there's a way for Bezalel 
to be tied up where he thinks that work is just about himself. And therefore, the only way he could be humble in work is to be bad at it. Because if he's good at it, it terminates on himself. It makes him prideful. There's a way for him to try to steal the glory from God and make it about himself. Wrap his identity up in it. Wrap his worth up in it. Make it about himself. But if good work is meant to glorify God, then the way to be humble in work is not to be bad at it, but to worshipfully be very, very good at it. The way to be humble in work is not to be bad at it, but to worshipfully be very, very good at it. And do y'all see how if work can be worship, that, that undermines our two primary cultural options given to us? That in this option, work is about you. It's about your identity. It's about your worth. And so that all of your work ultimately just turns around and is about you. You don't become a doctor because you want to care for sick people and it's a blessing to the world. You don't become a lawyer because we need justice. You become that because those are good things to be. And ultimately, your work is about you. But if my work is worshipful and it rolls up in praise to God, then that kills that approach. It undermines it. If you think that work is just a necessary evil so that you can enjoy the actual good stuff of life, when you understand that God's blessed you to be worshipful in your work, it can't be evil. It's part of the good stuff of life. It has purpose in it. And so this approach, this understanding, undercuts our approaches to work. But I want you to see something else. It's not just that work, work can be worshipful, but work, the use of skills, the exercise of these abilities that God has given us can be done in worship. But it's also one of the primary ways that we love our neighbors. Look at verse 6. Behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. Moses has been up on a mountain, and God has been repeatedly telling him. He's been repeatedly telling him that he's going to have to do this. He's going to have to make this. You're going 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 to make a table. You're going to make a tent. You're going to make an ephod. You're going to make a breast piece. You're going to have bells and pomegranates. It's all going to be finely done. It's going to be done really well. It's going to be engraved really well. You're going to make filigree. You're going to make all these things. Now, I don't think that Moses was thinking, oh, no, I can't do that. I'm a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. He's not about to walk down the mountain and weave a tent. I think Moses was thinking what we would think, which is, no, no, we're going to make this. Because that's how it works. And then God specifically says, I've blessed all of them with ability to accomplish all these things. And all that they're going to accomplish isn't just about worship. It's not just about themselves. But it also blesses everybody around them. That it's a blessing to have this kind of ability. That I, I want to, I, I missed a quote that I want to read to y'all. And I want to point out to y'all as we understand that work is an act of worship and then work is a way to love our neighbors. This is a quote from Dorothy Sayers. Uh, she's an author and she says this, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter 
is usually confined to exhorting him to not be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. For the record, it's good counsel. But then she says this, what the church should be telling him is this. The very first demand that his religion makes upon his time is that he should make good tables. And in doing that, he'll worship and he'll love God and he'll love his neighbor. There's a, uh, in his book, Tim Keller wrote a book called Every Good Endeavor. And in that book, he quotes another book, Work, The Meaning of Life by Lester DeCoster. And I want to read this quote to you. It's a longer quote, but I think it's a helpful thing to think through. He says this, work is the form in which we make ourselves useful to others, in which others make themselves useful to us. We plant with our work, and God gives the increase to unify the human race. So he says that in work, I make myself useful to others, others make themselves useful to us, and God blesses this. This is the concept that Martin Luther has of the masks of God, that God works through work. We're told in the Bible that God strengthens, strengthens the bars of the city. We're told that, that God watches over the city. We're told that God feeds everybody. Well, y'all, he does. But one of the ways he does that is that someone builds the walls and the bars of the city. And someone watches. There's night watchmen that watch over the city. And there's someone who milks the cow and someone who delivers the milk. Like, God feeds me. But one of the ways he does that is there's a food lion a mile from my house. And every day, someone goes over there and unlocks the doors for me and puts the lion back in the back where he's been doing night watchman stuff at night. <laughs> so that he won't attack me. Like, there's, there's things that someone does so that I can enter in there and be able to get the food out. And it's a blessing. And so this is what Lester DeCoster says. He says, look at the chair you are lounging in. Could you have made it for yourself? How would you get, say, the wood? Would you go and fell a tree? I said, sure, but only after first making the tools for that and putting together some kind of vehicle to haul the wood, and constructing a mill to do the lumber, and uh, making roads to drive on from place to place. In short, a lifetime or two to make one chair. You gonna go cut down a tree? Okay, make the tools to cut the tree down. All right, you did it, you got your tree down. Now what you gonna do? And it's just a helpful thought process of being like, okay, it'll take forever. He says, if we worked not 40, but 140 hours per week, we couldn't make for ourselves from scratch even a fraction of all the goods and services that we call our own. Our paycheck turns out to buy us the use of far more than we could possibly make for ourselves in the time it takes for us to earn the check. Work yields far more in return upon our efforts than our particular jobs put in. Why? Because of everybody else. That we could not, in the amount of time, have the things that we have, live the lives that we live, but we can together because of everybody else. Tim Keller then says, in response to this quote, the, the guy ends this quote by saying, the difference between a wilderness and a culture is simply work. That without, if everybody quit work, we would just be in a wilderness. And Tim Keller says, there may be no better way to love your neighbor, whether you are writing parking tickets, software, or books, than to simply do your work. And he calls this the ministry of competency. 
But you get to work in the ministry of competency, which means being competent, being good at the work that you've been given is a way to love your neighbor. My granddad grew up in the Swansea area, and he said he, he joined the Marines, so he went and signed up. He said he walked out of the office, got on the bus with a bunch of other guys, and they rode to Paris Island. He said they get off the bus. When they get off, this man comes out in a uniform and yells, I'm your mama now, boys. And my granddad said he thought, I may have made a mistake. <laughs> One of the first things they did was they issued him a uniform and they issued him boots. And so they went in and they all got measured for all of these things. And they, you know, measure you and give you your stuff. He said they measured somebody's foot, gave him a boot, gave him a pair of boots, sent him out. Measured a guy's foot, gave him a pair of boots, sent him out. Eventually they measured his foot. And apparently he has more of like a Clydesdale hoof than a foot. He said his foot is almost as wide as it is long. It just is like. And so they measured his foot and then went and looked for boots. And the guy who's in charge of this is just looking, they're trying on boots, looking, trying on boots, looking, trying on boots. It's like his first day in the Marines, and he's just sitting there trying on shoe after shoe after shoe. He said his drill sergeant comes back in and starts yelling at him while the, the guy was in the back looking for shoes. And then he said one of the most magical things that's ever happened in the Marines happened for his, his time in the Marines. The guy who fits you for boots outranked the guy who was yelling at him. So he said, he walked back in and said, let me tell you something. This Marine's going to have shoes that fit his feet. He's got to be on his feet all the time. And he said, he just chewed him out. He said, he just sat there after being chewed out, watched this guy get chewed out and then got to sit there until he had boots. And he looked at me and said, that man found me boots that fit my feet. And it was the first pair of comfortable shoes I've owned in my entire life. That's the ministry of competence. That man loved my granddad well. Do you know how easy it would have been to say, I don't think we have the size, put these on, and how much more difficult life would have been for my granddad as a Marine with shoes that didn't fit? That's what had happened to him his entire life. He had shoes that didn't fit. But this man did his job well. In this room, we have people who work in construction. We have people who, who work in the medical field. We have teachers. We have people who sell things, people who prepare food, people who uh, prepare taxes, people who help with people's books and finances. We have people who uh, sell products, fix products, cut hair. Which of those are we willing to give up competency on? I know you don't want an incompetent mechanic or an incompetent doctor. You don't want them quickly Googling things while you're talking to them. You'd like for them to kind of know what they're doing. And if they're going to Google, at least know where to go. But I can WebMD at the house. I want you to know what you're doing. But y'all, do we want an incompetent person to cut our hair? No. Have you ever had a really good haircut? Like a really good one? And you just walk around like... Because you just know this person knew what they were doing and they figured out my, my head shape and they were able to dodge all the bumps or whatever. Have you ever had a really bad haircut? Like a bad haircut? That, that messes your life up for a short period of time, but everybody's got to get haircuts. Y'all, you go into a place, like when I go into the Verizon store, I've gone in before and I felt like I know more about my phone than this person, which is bad. 
I've also gone in, and after about five minutes of talking, I've just relaxed. I'm like, this person's like a wizard. They know what they're talking about. The ministry of competence blesses your life, and you work. One of the primary ways that we love our neighbors is that we're good at our jobs. There may be a way for you to get another certification. There might be some YouTube videos that you can watch. There might be some ways that you can grow in knowledge or craftsmanship. There might be ways that you can get better at your job, that you can learn how to use this type of equipment. There's something that you can do that you can be competent, that you can help and love and serve people well, so that when you go to work, you are worshiping the Lord and loving your neighbor, and you get to do that day in and day out. That completely changes. That's countercultural to our cultural approaches to work. That if work is worship, and it's not about me, and it's not about giving me the good life, but it's about me honoring God with the abilities, the skills, the knowledge, the intelligence, the talents he's given me. And if work is a way for me to love my neighbor, then I get to go to work every day just knowing that if I competently prepare this food, I've blessed people. If I get their order right, I've blessed them. If I have a good attitude, if I'm honest when they ask me questions, I've blessed people. The ministry of competence is a way to love your neighbor. Go to Lowe's when you have a problem. Your day will then be decided by how competent the help at Lowe's is. And it makes a difference. So what kind of work do you do? And how can you get better at it? So, I believe that begins to answer our question, the third question that we have, which is, is it okay for me to just fix HVACs my whole life? Can I do pool repair? Is that okay? I think one of the things we've done well as a church, if we told you that one of the ways you can have purpose in your work is by being a missionary, that God has already placed you somewhere, and that you have coworkers, and you have a, an overseer, and you have all these people that God intentionally puts you there, that you might reach them with the gospel. And that nobody else is there. You've already been commissioned and sent as a missionary. And that's true. And I don't want you to lose that. But I think we've also failed to tell you that one of the ways that you can live a good life is to make really good tables. One of the ways, do you know how much of life is meant to be normal? How much of your life is meant to be go to work, eat some food, go to sleep? It's a continual thing. And that one of the blessings we're told is for us to be able to find joy and enjoyment and purpose in our labor, our toil. That this is a blessing from God. That's one of the things Ecclesiastes tells us. And you actually get to go to work and worship and love your neighbors day in and day out doing whatever good work you find to do. And so, can you do HVAC repair your whole life? Yeah. If you worship in it and you love your neighbors well in it. I'll tell you one thing. When somebody, when I need my HVAC repaired... I want a competent, honest person to show up at my house. You ever just, like, I'm not a hugger, but sometimes if somebody does something, I think, I want to hug you. I'm not going to. <laughs> but, like, it's weird for me to hug the plumber, but, like, I want to hug this plumber because they have just, they've blessed me. And there's a way for you to do that in whatever work you find yourself doing. And for someone who says, I just stare at a computer. I don't have coworkers. I don't have anybody that I get to, to try to be a missionary with. Okay. Well, do you know that some people in our church would die if they had to stare at a computer every day? They would physically wither up and fall over dead. They do not, they have not been blessed with the ability or the skill or the craftsmanship to handle what you are handling, and you get to bless people well by 
doing your job well. And you get to love people and you get to worship the Lord in a skill that he gave you that other people don't have. So yes, you can do that. But one of the things that I think is very interesting in this passage that I don't want us to miss because it's a part of this whole thing for us, it's part of this whole cultural thing for us, is that good God-glorifying rest is an appropriate counterpart to good God-glorifying work. Because go to verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Why does he say this right here before he sends them down the mountain? Because he's about to put a tablet of a to-do list in his hands. Y'all, Moses' to-do list is longer than yours. Do you know how many things he's got to go skillfully make? Do you know how many animals he's about to have to kill? So that they can have priests? Like, do you know this list is long? And guess what? Not going to be done in six days. And so there'd be a real temptation for them to go, we got work to do. This is what we have to do to be the people of God. But what's he say? Above all, you're going to keep my Sabbaths because I, the Lord, am the one who sanctifies you. That's not what you have to do to be the people of God. That's what you get to do because you're part of the people of God. But it's not what you have to do to be the people of God because I'm the one who set you apart. Good rest. Real rest. Y'all realize that in either one of our cultural options, you don't rest well? This option, you don't rest. Can't rest. I'll rest when I'm dead. But okay. Because I, my worth is here. And if I stop working, who am I? I've got to achieve. I've got to make a name for myself. I've got to get enough money. I've got to do it. I've got to prove. I've got to show back up to my high school reunion and be like, eh, hey, whatever. <laughs> and over here, rest is the point of life. Recreation and pleasure. And so it gets overinflated. Here it withers and dies, and here it becomes some monstrosity that it was never meant to be. And it's not enjoyable. It doesn't work that way. It's never enough. But if we have worshipful work, we get to have worshipful rest, and they're a beautiful counterbalance to one another. That the people who are worshiping in their work are also the people who can just stop. Because work isn't about them, and it's not about providing the good life. They just get to stop and say, the Lord's good. They get to rest, genuinely rest, be free. I think, I think we need to know that rest is a gift and it's a necessary practice to remind us of the place of work. Rest isn't the goal and it isn't the achievement, but it's also not a punishment or a hindrance to finding our significance, but it's a blessing. And I think that this information is good and helpful, but I think it's insufficient. I don't think this information will help you actually straighten out your problem, not on its own. I just don't think it can. I think you can leave going, I'm supposed to worship and work, I'm supposed to. But here's the problem. All of this hinges on God being the one who sanctifies them. And so for us, all of this hinges on Jesus. If Jesus isn't at work in this, it doesn't work. If Jesus doesn't come in and rescue you, because I want you to see something. If we say things like, oh, my job just isn't good enough. Usually what we mean, if, if someone said, why, why, why? If you, had, if you were trying to, you know, if your counselor was like a four-year-old, 
and you just said a statement, and then they said, why, 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 why? You would eventually get to, I think, it doesn't make me into enough. I don't feel like something with this job. Or it doesn't give me the good life. Do y'all know that wanting identity and value and worth and wanting pleasantness and rest and stability is a longing for Jesus? That I want someone to show up and tell me I'm okay? I want something that fixes me and lets me sleep at night? I want delight and rest and satisfaction. I want to be stable. I want to know that I'm all right. I want to know that I'm loved. I want to know that I'm enough. Do you know that's a cry for Jesus? So unless Jesus shows up, we won't ever be free to approach these the way we're meant to approach them. Because it's Jesus who comes and rescues and forgives sinners and gives them an identity. It's Jesus who gives us a purpose, who gives us a reality, who sets us free. It's Jesus who gives us freedom and stability and delight. And if that's true for you, if Jesus has shown up and you've surrendered to him, trusted in him, and he's at work in you through his spirit, then guess what? You can worship and work because you don't need it. You don't need it to satisfy. You don't need it to fix you. You don't need it to make you into something. You have that in Christ, and therefore you get to just return it back to the Lord. And you get to genuinely enjoy your work. And if Jesus is the good life, then you just, you can rest. If he's where your delight comes from and your fulfillment comes from, do y'all realize that it's never enough? That if you're over here in this camp, you've had moments where you're like, I did it. How long did that last? If you're lucky, six months before you had to keep achieving and you had to keep earning and you had to keep proving and you had to get more and it just, you ever had that moment where you think, finally, and then a mosquito bites your neck? <laughs> like it's, it's not enough. There's never enough rest. There's never enough relaxation. There's never, it never satisfies. You always want more. There was never a good enough party or a good enough celebration or a good enough stability. It's never enough because they were only meant to point us to our ultimate rest and our ultimate worth to be found in Christ. But if we have Jesus, then we get to people who work, who worship and work and love our neighbors well, who work hard and rest well, in the freedom that he's the one who sanctifies us, that he's the one who's accomplished all of this for us so that we're free to operate in this way. Let's pray. Oh Lord, so much of our life is gonna be taken up with work. And I think it's easy for us to, to think it's meaningless. I think it's easy for us to only care about what it provides for us. I think it's easy for us to wrap our entire identity in it. And so, Lord, we ask that by your spirit, you would begin to untangle our hearts. That you'd begin to see that we're sanctified by you. That our hope is in you. Our stability, our freedom, our rest, our delight is in you. Lord, for the person in the room who doesn't have you, who hasn't trusted in your salvation. Lord, we pray that you would help them to see the emptiness, the exhaustion found in placing their worth and value in their work. We pray that you would help them to see the emptiness found in thinking that life is just about what pleasures they can hoard here. 
We ask that by your spirit, you would draw them to yourself so that they might find what they're actually looking for. And for all of us who have found you, Lord, may you continue to work in us, to sanctify us, to set us apart, to draw us near to you so that we might worship you in our work and we might love our neighbors well. In Jesus' name, amen. Matt and Natalie are going to come back up and, and, and then in a minute the, the band will join them and we'll sing together. And we're going to take communion. And communion is a, rather, a, a regularly practiced reminder that we need Jesus. That we needed his body broken for us and his blood shed for us. That without him we have no hope and that with him he is the one who sanctifies us, who sets us apart. And so that when you come in to communion, that you we're proclaiming his death until he returns, that we are blood-bought people of God, rescued by his work, and that our hope is that one day he sets everything right. That in the midst of this labor and this desire, this pursuit, what we're saying is we want salvation and we want heaven, and we stand between those moments as Christians where we have been made right with God by Jesus, and we look forward to the moment when he rescues and redeems us, and that's what communion is. If you are not a Christian, do not partake in communion. It is not for you. If you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus, we would invite you to do that. And Christians in the room, take a moment to consider yourselves, to consider your approach to work, to consider whatever the Holy Spirit's putting on your heart that you might need to repent of, that you might need to change in your attitude before you come and celebrate that Jesus Christ died to save sinners and that your hope is in him and that it is he that sanctifies. So take a moment, and when you're ready, come take communion.